Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before I begin, I want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com. That's where you go if you want to become deeper uh, involved into this community of personal finance and you know, we do other stuff too, like today, wellness and and uh, that kind of thing. There's lots of resources there, lists to sign up, including our accredited investor list. Uh, obviously, we are very active uh, in that in that area. If you're an accredited investor and you're interested in getting your money off the sideline, uh, go to wealthformula.com, sign up for Investor Club and get onboarded. Anyway, as for today's show, I want to talk a little bit about something a little bit different. As you know, we don't always talk about personal finance in this show. A lot of times we talk about life because, you know what, it's not just about money. It's about like, you know, your life and what's the point of having a bunch of money if you, you know, if you're not really enjoying yourself, if you're not trying to like, you know, make your days of value. And so there's this idea uh, that I've had a lot of for a while and uh, which I always kind of thought was funny is that, you know, there's really a fine line between being a quitter, right? Like in the negative connotations, you're a quitter and the pragmatic individual navigating life, right? Quitting, of course, in our culture, it's very, it has very negative connotations. It's un-American. It's associated with weakness and lack of grit. Uh, in reality, however, quitting is often, and I will tell you from personal experience, the best thing that you can do, and the sooner that you can do it, the better off you are. And I'm, I'm a, again, I'm a good example of a guy who has quit quite a few times, uh, and I would say is much better off for it. I think so. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the alternative is, but I, I wasn't happy then doing something, and, and, and then now, now I'm fine. So... For example, when I was in medical school, I was a hardcore student. They used to call people like me gunners, and that was not a good thing to be a gunner. It was like being Darth Vader or something. I was intense. You know, I was intense about my studies, got myself involved with lots of research projects, and became uh, the favorite student of the neurosurgery department. And uh, that was exactly where I wanted to be because, you see, at some point along the line, I decided I wanted to be a brain surgeon. I thought that the brain and the central nervous system were fascinating, very cool, nothing cooler for sure. But in hindsight, I must admit that there were 
a few other drivers that were probably stronger than my fascination with neuroscience uh, that, uh, that drove me in that direction. You see, I saw brain surgery as the top of the medical school pecking order. Of course, the idea of being a brain surgeon also appealed to me because of the social bragging rights that came along with it. After all, most people outside medicine are pretty impressed when you tell them you're a brain surgeon. So I did what I had to to get into a neurosurgical residency. I graduated with honors uh, from medical school uh, and scored very high on the uh, required board exam, the step one board exam that they use to evaluate residents. I also published lots of book chapters and peer-reviewed articles uh, in neurosurgery before I ever even finished medical school and got raving reviews and accolades from my professors who were some of the biggest names in, in, in neurosurgery at that time. And because of that drive, because of that perseverance, I got into one of the top neurosurgery programs in the country that had produced some of the most famous people in my profession. So, my grand scheme was working out beautifully. Then it happened. I actually started the program, right? I mean, it wasn't theoretical anymore. I was there, and I wasn't really enjoying myself. Sure, I liked walking around with that white coat that said neurosurgery on it. Uh, you know, that was probably the best part of it because I used to walk around. I used to have this thing that's neurosurgery on it, and I thought, you know, I was like early 20s. thought it was super cool. Used it to impress cute nurses. Uh, felt pretty macho. All good. But it was not enough uh, to get over the fact that I hated the hours. Very early mornings, very late nights. That was when you weren't on call. When you were on call, an emergency meant you're up all night because bleeding brains can't wait until the next morning. Then then I'd have a full day of you know surgery, uh, elective surgery to do with my, my, uh, my professors the next day. And I had to be alert and attentive and try to learn something along the way. Boy, I got to tell you, I really, really did not enjoy it. Curiously, though, I noticed that most of my fellow residents did seem to enjoy it. They got really excited when the pager went off in the middle of the night. You know, they got excited and filled with adrenaline uh, you know, like, like they were Batman and all of a sudden somebody's calling for Batman and they just spring out of bed and like, I'm Batman. Well, not me. When the pager went off in the middle of the night, I'd feel nothing but dread. And it took me midway through my second year of neurosurgical residency to figure out that this was not going to work. So I quit. At that point, I felt like I was in free fall. I mean, for years, I had created this identity that I was living. It took thousands of hours to get there with lots of blood and sweat. Was it just a waste of time? Well, yeah, it probably was a waste of time. I mean, yeah, by definition. I mean, I'm not doing it and whatever. It's, uh, it was a waste of time. Uh, but it could have been worse. I could have stuck it out for another five years and been miserable the rest of the way. My attending professors, you know, the the, the people who were done with residency training and, and, and teaching us, they didn't seem to have such a great life either. So it wasn't like that there was this great light at the end of the tunnel that I had something to look forward to. So I ended up switching specialties, ended up ultimately in uh, cosmetics, which is just kind of funny because it's, you know, uh, kind of different from brain surgery. Um, brains versus butts, you know, like what's the difference, right? Anyway, of course, after a few years of that, as you know, quit medicine altogether. 
I guess it just wasn't for me. Now think of that for a moment, okay? Think of that for a moment. Four years of college, four years of medical school, seven years of postgraduate surgical training, and I just quit because I didn't want to do it anymore. Crazy, yes, but also liberating. The moral of the story, though, is that when you figure out that something is not working for you, move on quickly. It seems simple enough uh, to say that, right? But uh, how many people do you know who complain about their jobs every single day and talk about doing different things, but they never do? They just complain about it, right? It's just like Groundhog's Day every day. Nothing different. Relationships are no different either, right? You usually know within the first few weeks in any new relationship, is their long-term potential. However, rather than break it off quickly, people often drag out relationships for months or years to make it work, you know, to try to get that round peg into the square, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes they even get married. I know people like that. It's, it's, uh, it's not a good idea. Anyway, and of course, I will uh, give you the caveat that I'm a, I'm a d- single divorced type of guy. So I'm not much of an authority on relationships. So don't listen to me. However, the larger theme here is uh, quit while you are behind. Okay. Don't prolong the pain. There's plenty of gain to be had without enduring the pain. So my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast actually has essentially written a book on this concept that, you know, the idea of being tough and and not quitting and, and being resilient is actually a lot of times not good advice. A fascinating book, a fascinating guy. You're going to love this, and we'll have it all for you right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Steve Magnus. He is an author, world-renowned expert on performance. Collectively, his books have sold more than a quarter million copies. He's the author of Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness, which is his latest book. Uh, he's also written The Science of Running, How to Find Your Limit and Train to Maximize Your Performance. He's also co-authored a number of books, uh, including uh, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, 
and thrive with the new science of success and the passion paradox uh, guide to do going all in finding success discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life so steve welcome yeah thanks for having me so one of you know the the i was starting to ask you this offline because my first thought was what's up with all the books i mean what i mean <laughs> so like what what drives you man i mean like you, these things they are they are related right i mean they're they're performance related but mostly is there an underlying theme to the things that you're interested in here that is a great question and i think what it comes down to is i write the book that i'm struggling with in that moment so if you look at the trajectory of the books like it started out very athletic performance science of running well i was a runner myself and helping coach other runners. So of course that makes sense. And then you get broader and broader and broader until my latest one, which is do hard things, which is how do you handle life's challenges and the adversity you, you face. And I think the motivation to do so is like a book takes a lot of work. So it, <laughs> yeah, a good book does, right? Like you can write like with Amazon, you can write a lot of, you know, shitty books yeah. pretty, pretty quickly. So that, that is very true. That's a good caveat. A good book takes a lot of work. Um, so what happens is I really need that kind of personal connection of like, hey, I haven't solved everything. Hey, I don't know the answers to everything, but let's see if we can find out. And that keeps that motivational flame burning for the several years that, that you need to write a good book. And then what, what, what goes into the research in these kinds of things? Are you talking to a lot of people? Are you reading a lot? What, 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 do, you, what do you do? Yeah, it takes a lot. You know, um, I always start off with researching. So diving into the literature studies, academic stuff, because I want at least to know enough to be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So so that allows you to be informed when I then reach out to experts and people who, you know, are in this stuff in the weeds all the time yeah. so that we, we can actually have like an in-depth conversation on some of these things and I can get below the the surface level kind of understanding of ideas cool well let's let's dive into the current one which is you know do hard things why we get resilience wrong and the surprising science of real toughness so i guess uh, the american dream is based on toughness in many regards you know i think that's what if you think of a national character especially um well i don't know about the current america but certainly (laughs) the the the, the America that I remember as a kid is the America based on toughness. And um, so why, why do we have toughness all wrong? Yeah. So I think there's some great things about the America that, you know, you, you, and maybe I remember from years ago is that toughness is important and I'm not saying it isn't, it's vital. Like being able to handle difficult things is, is central to being able to handle challenges in life. But I think where we get it wrong is we often hold on to these, what I'd call old school mentalities, which is there is only one way to deal with adversity, and that's to put our head down, bulldoze through, and tr- do everything we can to get on the other side. So I guess part of part of understanding what toughness and what, what you're alluding to is to d- define toughness, specifically, I mean, what what is that? What is toughness? And is is that is that um, definition changed from, you know, the 80s to now? I mean, is, is it different? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. And I, I define it in the book is 
creating the space to navigate discomfort or uncertainty and being able to take wise action. So toughness to me is all about, it's not about the act of like grinding through. It's about the decision that comes from it. Because when you're going through stressful or uncertain or difficult moments or times, it's all about how do we navigate that to get to the best path forward. And that path forward could be a number of different paths or number of different ways. And we want to make sure that we're taking wise action and not just like, hey, this is the escape path. This is the easiest way through. I'm just going to default to that. How, how do you... Um how do you contrast the concept of toughness with resilience? We hear a lot about resilience these days, right? And, and it's almost one of those words that's just kind of overused now, but what, so what's the difference between toughness and resilience? Yeah. So all of these words are kind of similar. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem. It's all jumbled together. But if you look at resilience, resilience is essentially the ability to back, uh, to bounce back. So we're looking at how do we go through something difficult and then come back to normal. I look at toughness and I think the research is like, what are the skills that we need to not only bounce back, but perhaps adapt and grow and come out on the other side, maybe change or better than what we went through it. So let me ask you this. So, and, and in, interestingly, uh, what, uh, you know, what you're talking about sort of does resonate with me at a, you know, I'm not really on the athletic side per se, but like on the uh, career side. So I started out as a neurosurgery resident and that was my whole uh, identity in medical school. I was like a hardcore medical student published like crazy and, um, you know, got in neurosurgery programs and stuff like that. And I got there and I was like, man, I don't like this. I mean, I don't like being up all the time. I don't like being up every night. You know, this is not me, but that, and so, and, and I will tell you that I'm not, I guarantee you I'm not alone uh, with, with people who've gone through these situations where they've signed themselves up for whether it's medical school, surgical residency, or any number of other things that are tough. But there's sometimes a mentality that now you're there, you've already put so many years into it, you got to just keep doing it. One of the, the things that I, uh, I, so I quit neurosurgery. I ended up doing, a, you know, I, I moved into a profession that, um, you know, that was less, it didn't, didn't keep me up at night. And for a long time, I felt a lot of identity crisis, right? And I had a problem with like, I was, a, I was the neurosurgery guy. I was, you know, top of whatever. And, um, but there was a tremendous relief. Now is part of what you're talking about, our ingrained, uh, re- reluctance to quit, when we know that we're, we're doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. I think that's a great example because to me, and this gets at the contrast perfectly is the old school model would say, just persevere, persist. But if that makes you miserable, if that doesn't align with like what you want or what you need in your life, is that the tough thing to do? You know, I don't think so. I think the tough thing to do is being able to step back and be like, hey, I know that neurosurgery gives me a lot of status. I know that I I identify with it and other people identify me with it. 
But the tough decision in that moment is to be like, but this isn't, this doesn't align with my values. This doesn't align with my future. How do I essentially quit? And I think we've created so much of uh, this negativity around quitting where we see it as, you know, failure is like, oh, I wasn't good enough. And that's why you experience that identity crisis. Cause it's like, can I not handle this? Like what's wrong with me? But in reality, it was probably the best thing you did because it realigned you with like what your goals, your motivation, all that stuff and allowed you to thrive as an individual where maybe if you just persisted and persisted and never quit it, you would have been miserable and unhappy and unfulfilled and not able to do all of the great things that you're, you were able to do and are still doing. It's funny because the, the toughness element of that uh, is at odds with, okay, so, you, you know, you, you, society in American culture in particular, it's, you know, the value is to do the hard thing, right? And you go back to even Kennedy's speeches, you know, we, we go to the moon, not because uh, <laughs> it's easy because, because it's hard. Right. Um, so I, I think that's great, but I think that the trap we get into sometimes is, is seeing those types of things as like, you have to, you have to make sure that they are, uh, copacetic with who you are, not just what society thinks and just because you're capable of something doesn't mean you should do it. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's actually some good research behind this. And I talk about it in the book is that when we decide our goals, like we decide the hard thing to do, we're more motivated. We're more likely to persist. We're happier. We're more fulfilled. If we feel like those goals are imposed upon us, either by a boss or maybe society telling us this is the way, what happens is a, we don't persist as well. Um, and then B we're essentially miserable and our motivation shifts to more kind of a negative. I'm just doing this because I have to, instead of I want to, and our happiness contentment over the long haul go down. So to me, like one of the central things about quote unquote toughness is yeah. When you find that thing that aligns with what you care about and what you value, like go for it. But if it doesn't, and we're just needlessly, you know, quote unquote, doing the hard thing for the sake of it, you're going to end up in probably a bad place. So it's like that you, you need that self-awareness to understand like what's actually important and what aligns with your values. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's funny because it just seems like a lot of times um, people know pretty quickly that something's not right for them. Right. I mean, it's, it, it, even though we may drag something on for years, if you go back and you look at things that you, you know, you quit or you left or you changed, you knew that it wasn't right for you probably in the first month or two. I mean, that's like defining like half the, like, you know, half the relationships out there, right? It's like, you know, you started dating somebody and you're like, well, you know, she's all right. Maybe she'll grow into her or something like that. And three months later, you know, it's not going to work. A year later, you're like, I'm still in this. Same thing for everything, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> right. And I love that example because everybody knows it. And, and you know, the brilliant part, though, it gets at, at this central thing. Well, who knew it in your circle before you did? Often right. your friends, right? right? Your, your friends were like, man, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, why are you still dating that girl? Right. 
and, and that kind of gets us back to these moments of, well, you, you know, everybody knows, but we often get in our own way and having perspective or creating perspective, whether that's through friends or just the ability to like zoom out and look at your life and be like, what am I doing, man? Like, I got to make this decision. Like that is often one of the key components to navigating those decisions that we don't want to make. So there is another side of this, which is that, um, when you do decide that there's something that you want to do that resonates with you, um, and it looks daunting and hard, there's a significant benefit to driving in that direction in terms of self-improvement. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's a reason we're often drawn to doing hard things or should be. It's because in so much of life, we kind of stay in this comfort zone of where we're kind of controlled and content and all that stuff. But it's really once we push those bounds that a whole bunch of good things happen psychologically and even physiologically is we get almost flooded with hormones where it's like we feel alive, you know, and that that feeling of feeling alive and pushing our bounds. And then also the other thing that happens psychologically is often we have to shed some of the kind of facade that we carry around because difficult things expose us. They force us to um, wrestle with maybe the things that we're not good at or our weaknesses or our doubts or our insecurities. And they, and we're forced to come face to face with those things. And I think having something in your life where you, you kind of have to wrestle with that and do something difficult is, is very valuable for your long-term psychological health. Yeah, I, I think it it's almost like an evolutionary thing if you think about it, right? Like we're not designed to be comfortable human, like comfortable creatures, right? Like having things in the refrigerator and and <laughs> and ordering out. We were supposed to like go find you know our way in the world, and so not in in a way like having nothing to work for or nothing to really drive. Um, you might as well be you know you're 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 sort of at that point evolutionarily irrelevant. Right. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're spot on. All of our biology is primed to do that. Yeah. Why? Because we wanted to survive. So how do you, how do you survive? Well, you have to go out and do something very demanding, go persistence hunt or whatever, explore. It's why humans are natural explorers because we need to see the unknown. We need to figure it out. Um, and all of our, our kind of biology and hormones are set up to do that. If you look at things like dopamine, what does it do? It doesn't erupt during the reward. You feel the highest dopamine spike, which is like a motivator during the pursuit because it's like egging us on to say like, hey, keep hunting, keep going, all that stuff. So I think in our modern world for, you know, better and worse, we we don't get those hits of like dopamine and other things in that regard because we don't put ourselves in those situations where it's like we're doing something tangibly difficult that is, you know, uncomfortable. Yeah. It's just like we're designed for, you know, the the dopamine hits are really supposed to be there to reward you for 
things that you did that were good that got you excited and we we, we look for artificial means sometimes to to try to try to do the same thing because we don't have those kinds of that kind of exhilaration uh in our own lives Exactly. We take the cheap and easy way out, right? We scroll on our phones to get those hits, which doesn't give us that satisfaction of actually doing the difficult thing. And I think that is a, a, a key differential that often we lack. So to me, it's like, if modern society doesn't provide some of this, we have to have things that that fulfilled this. Another thing that we know is not only hormonally, but like our brain is very adaptive to this stuff. So I think one of the reasons why, you know, um, people are often seen as like sensitive in this world is because it's almost like our brain's threat detecting machine, like is never tested. So the, the analogy I like to use is if you haven't worked out for like, you know, six months or a year for whatever reason, and you go out the door and you try and run as hard as you can, well, those first steps, your brain's going to be like, hey, what are you doing? This hurts a lot. Stop, stop, stop. Because you haven't been at that place. You haven't felt that discomfort in a really long time. If every day you went out and you exercised a little bit, that alarm gets quieter. That threat isn't as loud. I think the same thing applies to other aspects in our life is that, you know, even if it's something psychologically difficult, if we can struggle with something, it, it turns down that threat. It almost sends that message in your brain that, hey, yeah, this is difficult, but we're okay. You've been similar places before. You can handle this. So uh, when you, um, you know, when, when the title, part of the title of the book includes uh, surprising science of real toughness. Talk, talk a little bit about the science. I mean, I know you, you know, you pride yourself on doing um did a rigorous um, research on this stuff, but some of the things that you discovered or anecdotes that might be of interest to, uh, you know, to, to support some of the things we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. So I think on the science side, one of the most interesting findings was just on that, that, that threat that I talked about. Um, there was a fascinating series of research studies that compared expert meditators versus like your average Joe, you know, regular person. And in these studies, they made them do extremely painful or difficult things. So, you know, one was getting up in front of an audience and giving a speech while being heckled, right? Another, another was they, they took like a, a painful hot probe and stuck, stuck it on their wrist to make them feel physical pain. And, and what they found was fascinating is that during the thing, let's say the painful hot probe, the meditators and the average Joes felt the same intensity of the pain. Okay. So during it, it was about the same, but before and after it was completely different. So the average Joe in anticipation before they even got, you know, that painful hot probe stuck on them, their, their threat area in the brain was just sounding the alarm as like run danger, like get out of here, escape. The meditators were calm, cool, and collected their kind of rational part of the brain was still online, almost telling the, the threat area, hey, nothing's happened yet. We're okay. And then afterwards as well, the, um, the average Joe, their kind of painful threat response kept going for hours. They felt stressed for hours. The meditators, it was like once the painful probe was removed or once they got off the stage, 
their threat area goes back to down to zero. It says, hey, we're okay. The threat's gone. We don't need to like ruminate on this. And I think that was such an interesting thing because the researchers essentially said the problem isn't the thing, the difficult thing itself. It's that most of us are getting like a triple dose of the stress when we do anything hard. And instead, if we can train our ability to kind of, you know, like the meditators, like embrace the reality of the situation and tackle the difficult thing as it is, but don't spend hours worrying about it. And then hours afterwards, stressing over what just happened. So what do you think? So is meditation part of the anecdote to some of the things, uh, some of the troubles that you're seeing uh, people have? I, I think so. I think mindfulness is, again, there's lots of research on this, is that mindfulness works. And the great thing is that mindfulness works even in small doses. So research has found that even after, I think it's like, you know, four or five 20 minute sessions, you see changes in the brain where you're not freaking out as much during stressful situations. But I would take that a step further is I don't think it's just mindfulness. I think it's anything where you're essentially put in a place where it's you alone in your head having to navigate like that stress, that anxiety, those doubts and those insecurities, that is an opportunity to train to almost just like we would with mindfulness is like, don't react to it. Learn how to sit with it and kind of be like, okay, I'm just going to accept into this situation instead of freaking out. Because anytime we freak out, you're essentially training your brain. You're saying, hey, the best course of action is to spiral out of control. So next time you're in a similar situation, spiral out of control. How is it important to respond instead of react when doing hard things? Yeah. So that really gets at what I just kind of talked about a little bit is, Anytime we're doing something difficult, you're training your, your, your mind and brain, which way to go and reacting to me is it's, it's that instinctual, like, I'm just gonna like very quickly react. It's being in the argument with your spouse and saying something that, you know, you shouldn't, but just kind of comes out. Right. And then you regret it. That's the reacting that that's often what gets us in trouble responding is like being in those moments where you feel the anger, the anxiety, like coming, but like being able to just slow things down or create just enough space where you don't default towards that, that outburst, but are able to navigate through it and be like, okay, like I need to create space between the stimulus, this feeling and this response I have. So I take wise action and don't have just this reaction. And as I said, it, any moment where you're feeling that kind of urge to act is that moment where if you can create some space, you're training your brain to be able to do so. Um, you know, and that's, that's again, goes back to the whole mindfulness thing, right? Because it's just a matter of control of emotions. And, um, you know, it's a Warren Buffett, uh, quote, I can't exactly remember, but in effect, he was, his quote was, you can always wait until tomorrow to tell somebody to screw off. Right. <laughs> exactly. Our, our, I love that because our initial reaction is like we, we send the text, we send the email, we yell at the person. Right. When, right. when often that like leads us down a, a bad path. And if we just have that, you know, you, you create that space, wait till tomorrow. Sometimes you realize, oh man, I, maybe I should yeah, lighten should. this up a little bit, you know? And in the moment, it just thing, it just seems like you can't wait till tomorrow, but you know, and then you always, it's always like, always regret it. That's always, <laughs> um, 
so again, Steve, uh, the the book is Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Uh, I imagine this is available everywhere. Yes, it's available wherever books are sold. Uh Are you on Audible too? I am. Did you read it yourself? I did not. I had the option to, but I couldn't bring it to myself to sit down no? for, you know, a dozen, you know, 12 hours or whatever yeah, it is yeah. and just read the thing. Well, I guess that's true. So, um, so the, and also we can, um, find you additional information at, uh, stevemagnus.com. That's with two S's. And, um, I know you have a big social media following in Instagram and, and Facebook and all that as well. Um, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast, man. And, um, you know, good, good luck on the book. And I'm, I'm sure it'll do great. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, it's just food for thought, right? You're, uh, and, and listen, I, I'm not here to tell you to quit whatever you're doing. I just trying to, uh, you know, I think I, as you can tell probably from some of my podcasts, I'm also trying to figure out things for myself in my life too. And sometimes you have to really think about the things you're doing on a daily basis. What's getting you excited about things? What's not getting you excited about things? It's not about completely necessarily, you know, uh, doing 180 degrees and quitting medicine and if you're a doctor or whatever, but it's it is about trying to look at other things in life that you could be doing or things that you're doing that you don't want to be doing anymore. So it's worth thinking about. I think interesting idea. I'd encourage you to you know maybe pick up Steve's book. Anyway, that's it. That's all I got for this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.